Uh, thank you, worship team, and thank you all for singing this morning and uh, being a part of our worship. So good to hear your voices in, uh, in, uh, in worship here together, and uh, welcome again to, to Grace Point. So glad to have you here. Uh, many of you know that I grew up in the Caribbean. Yeah? All right. Some of you knew that. One of the perks, which I may have told you about before, of not only growing up in Barbados, but also having a father who was a U.S. Navy veteran, is that he got involved in a ministry in which when Navy ships would come into the port in Barbados, which is massive, of course, we would go as a family, or sometimes just he and I, into the port authority, go through the gates there, and go grab some of the soldiers, some of the, the Navy shipmen from the ships, and bring them back to our house for a meal. It was a really neat deal for them and for us, because the perk on the flip side for me as a kid is that I would get a tour of a battleship. I would get a tour of a destroyer, I'd get a tour of an aircraft carrier, get a tour of a submarine. I remember being on various USS whatevers that, that came in. I can't even tell you how many hats or whatever that I got from the USS this and the USS that. And in those moments, I will tell you that I was very um, overwhelmed with the power of what I was experiencing. Now, I had no concept, okay, of any theological questions of war. Let's save that for another moment. That's a worthy discussion in and of itself. But for the moment, as a boy, going into getting a tour of a destroyer or an aircraft carrier or a submarine carried a tremendous sense of awe, of, wow, I can't believe this. The winding passageways down in the submarine where even I remember as a boy taking these steps that were right on top of each other, feeling like there was no room on the step for my foot and wondering how do these grown men do this, especially in a panic moment or a moment of hurry when they have to accomplish their mission and feeling tight and wondering how in the world do you do this for weeks or maybe months on end being underwater. And then the destroyers with their power, smaller but more powerful ships, no doubt in terms of their artillery and what they could fire. And then the aircraft carrier, Truly amazing to stand on the deck of a carrier and wonder, how do you do this out in the open water? And just see everything there in front of you. No real sides to that thing. You have to be able to fly that out. Best time I had was when I flew the F-16 off the deck and over the island. That was the best part of it all. But seeing these, these fighter jets, the F-16s right there, and going down into the, the, uh, the control rooms and everything, truly amazing sight. Now here's, here's the deal. No matter, no matter how powerful these ships were, and they truly were amazing in their own right. No matter how powerful they were, no matter how much money was put into them, they will do the same thing that every other ship would do if left in the open water alone. No matter how powerful of weaponry they had or how many F-16s on the deck, if they're set in the open water without thrust or without an anchor, they will drift. They will move wherever the current takes them. In many ways, it doesn't take us long to see the parallel to our lives, does it? I learned something in college. One of those things I learned was the second law of thermodynamics, which is that 
uh, I'm not going to say it perhaps quite scientifically correct, but essentially things in the universe tend toward decay rather than toward improvement. So the reason that when you buy a new car, it doesn't stay new, it doesn't get newer, it tends to decay, second law of thermodynamics. If you put a bicycle in the woods for 20 years, you come back, it's not better than when you left it, it's completely rusted out and quote-unquote worthless. Things in the universe tend toward decay. Things left alone tend toward decay. Focus, purpose, mission, left alone, tends toward decay. As we think about our personal lives in relation to the second law or even these ships that I'm talking about, you have experienced this in your own life, no doubt. And that is the sense over time of a little bit of a drift of purpose or a little bit of a drift of mission. You ever have that feeling as a student in high school or college where you're all gung-ho and ready to go for the new thing and then after the semester rolls on, you're drawn down and a little less enthusiastic. They term, made this term called senioritis, right? It's like a disease seniors get because they're no longer enthused by what they were enthused about as a freshman. They're just now, I'm so tired of it. In other words, I've drifted from my original mission, purpose, enthusiasm. You know marriages like this, right? You know business relationships like this. You've experienced this in your own personal walk with Christ, I, I would bet, if you're a human, breathing, living person. That drift is kind of normal. But I will tell you this, drift is normal, not only for us individually, but also for organizations. Um, I found this uh, to be very interesting as I was preparing for this new series that we're starting here this morning, um, that organizations, every organization, has this susceptibility toward drift, drift of mission or drift of purpose. It was all the way back in 1636 that several Christian leaders in the northeastern part of our United States got together and said, you know what, we need to start a school. You need to start a school with a clear and strong mission statement. And here was their statement established in 1636. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Very clear, very strong. This is the main end. This is the mission statement of Harvard University in 1636. After about 80 years, about 80 years, some folks in New England began to realize Harvard University has drifted from its mission. It's been left in the waters and it's drifted. We need to start something new. Harvard's motto was truth. But we want our motto to be not just truth, but light and truth. And so in 1718, a new university was founded on the back of a great philanthropist in the New England area whose first name was Elihu and last name was Yale. Yale was founded, and now we know that Yale was founded for this purpose, to correct the drift of Harvard University. And we know where Yale is today. Yale has its own purpose and focus, but it is not anything like what it was originally founded for. In his book called Mission Drift, which if you've never read it and you're a business leader or an organizational leader or just someone interested in mission and purpose in your own life, Peter Greer writes a book called Mission Drift. It's a worthy read. In there he quotes a fellow named, um, the last name of Crane, and here's what Crane says. He says, it's the exception that an organization stays true to its mission to its mission, the natural course, the unfortunate evolution of many originally Christ-centered missions is to drift. In other words, it is the exception rather than the rule. It is unusual 
It is unusual for an organization or anything like that that has a Christ-centered focus to stay true to that focus over the long haul. That is what Chris Crane of Edify Ministries has to say. In his book, Greer talks about one other thing, and he writes a story um, about a, a movement that began a while ago, and he writes this. In the Middle Ages, the church sponsored a charity similar to modern-day urban food banks and created as an alternative to loan sharks this new thing was called, and here's a Latin term, so forgive me, my Latin is very rusty, Montes Pietatius. Okay? This was the name given to this new ministry. It was to help poor people manage their meager incomes. These charities provided low-interest loans to poor families, ensuring there was enough food on the table. It was started by the Franciscans, who opened more than 150 Montes Pietatius, they became widespread throughout Europe. And get this, in 1514, even Pope Julius II, the Pope, all right, gave an edict endorsing them. The institutions were the lifeblood of European peasants. And today, we know them as pawn shops. Isn't that interesting? This is their history. And what do you think of when you think of a pawn shop today? Nothing, no ministry designed to help the poor, but rather something to take advantage of the poor, right? Where is it along the way that mission drifts? Where is it along the way that when you get disconnected from your purpose, you become something completely and totally different? And here's what we know. It's subtle. Thus the word drift. It's subtle. It's in the language chosen. It's in the culture created. It's in the little decisions that are made. But at some point, and here's what's also very important, at some point, there becomes a tipping point where an organization will not return to its original purpose unless there's some miraculous act of God. Harvard, Yale, and pawn shops are not going to return to their original purpose unless there is some miraculous work of God. They've passed that tipping point. And in this series, Refocus, Refresh, <laughs> Refuel, uh, my purpose, my hope is to put before us what in the world are we, the church, about. We are just as susceptible as anybody else, as any other organization. We do not stand alone. We are not impenetrable. The future of the church is one in which we are going to need to decide what are we anchored to and what are we driven by when we're moving. If we're set alone in the waters and left to drift, we will do exactly that. And so my hope for us, for you, as we talk about refocus, what in the world is the church here for? Not just the church in general, although we'll talk about that, but in, in particular, Grace Point Church. What are we anchored to? What are we thrust by? We do not want to be in the open waters because no matter how well we're built, any ship drifts and any organization, even if blessed by the Pope, if left to itself, will drift. So I want for you during this series, here's what I hope. Number one, that we can have a refocus. We can say, okay, this is why we make the decisions that we make. This is why we move in the direction that we make. This is why we're going the way we're going. And this is what I should expect from this church. If I'm here, if I'm raising a family here, if I'm growing old here, if I'm planning to invest here, this is what this church will be about. This is the focus of Grace Point Church. And this is what it will also feel like 
to carry out the ministry and life of the church. It's one thing to say this is where we're going. It's another thing to talk about what is the culture, or another word we use, and you're familiar with, what are the values of the church that drive it? That is the thrust, the driver. What is the church? Where are we going? What drives it? And I hope that throughout this series, it's not just at a corporate level that we get that refocus, but also in every message, I hope you can reflect personally on your own life. Because the church is made up of individual people. And if the church has a mission but you don't, guess what? The church won't have a mission for long. So if the church says we're about this and you're like, eh, we begin the process of the drift. And so this morning, even as we talk about mission of the church, I'm going to end with your mission. We're going to turn it back personally at the end. But here's what we know. The people of God at all times have struggled to maintain mission. They really have. I want to take you to one passage in the Old Testament to begin, and that is to the book of Joshua. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn there to Joshua. Um, Joshua is the uh, sixth book in the Old Testament. And that, um, if you don't own a Bible, by the way, that uh, Bible is, there's a Bible in a pew around you. You can grab that Bible. That's our gift to you this morning. You can take that here, uh, take that from here and go with it as you would like and read that and enjoy that and learn more about uh, our God and faith there, all right? But Joshua, we're going we're gonna to hit it up on uh, chapter 24 uh, briefly. In fact, I would have loved to spend more time in this entire section. And just so you know, historically, we're jumping into a time period where Joshua, who was a hero of the nation of Israel, a, a conquering hero, um, one who <laughs> um, was a great, valiant warrior. Uh, he was a man's man, um, incredible leader. He's getting to the end of his life, and if you've ever um, had someone in your family who's kind of come to the end of their life, and they know that the end is coming, and they call together the family to talk and kind of share their last memories, and they want to get a, across one last point, like, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to live with. Here are the values that I have for you. This is where we are in the book of Joshua. He's already had a couple of meetings like this, and now in Joshua 24, beginning at verse 1, he brings together all the tribes of, the, of Israel at Shechem. So check out verse 1 of Joshua 24. Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem, and he summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And so then, verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Now he begins with a history lesson. Long ago, your ancestors, and this is amazing, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River. And, and what's the next phrase? Read that with me. And worshipped other gods. Interesting, you know that Abraham's father worshipped other gods? Interesting backstory, isn't it? All right. So they began to, they were worshiping other gods. Verse 3, but I took your father Abraham, God speaking, from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I signed a hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. And then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out 
When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea. Remember that time, Israel? You were stuck at the sea. You didn't know what to do. And the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried out to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and he brought the sea over them and covered them. Remember that time, Israel? You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I remember that. Yep, remember that. Verse 8. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. Remember that moment when I won the battle for you? I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, the son of Beor, to put a curse on you. Remember that crazy guy who wanted to curse you, but I wouldn't let him? Verse 10, but I would not listen to Balaam, and so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Remember that moment, Israel, when that happened, when the man who wanted to curse you, I put different words in his mouth. I completely changed that story. Remember that? Verse 11, then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, and so did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands, and I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, and also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. And so I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build. And you live in them, and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Do you remember all of that, Israel? Do you remember that? Because Joshua is about to die, and he's saying... Let me just take you on a history lesson. Do you remember all that? You started where you were worshiping other gods, and the, the, the father of our great Abraham was worshiping other gods, and then I did all this for you, and now you are here. And then verses 14 and 15, pivotal verses in the history of the Old Testament. Now, in light of all of that, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. In other words, mission drift. Throw away the gods that your ancestors were worshipping. They forgot about all these things. They forgot that God delivered them. Throw that all away. Verse 15. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the, Lord, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But, and here's this final moment, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Great section calling the nation of Israel to a moment of definition and commitment. This is what we're about. And to summarize the response, Israel says, I mean, they're, they're worked up and they're emotional perhaps and they're ready to go and they say, we will do it, Joshua. We will serve the Lord. And you know what Joshua says? I don't believe you. <laughs> I hear you, but I don't believe you. You're not going to do that, is what he says. I know your story, but I don't believe you. And then they repeat it again, and he wants them to do that, and he wants them to say it again, because when you say it twice, it means more than the first time, because you think about it again. And they say it again. Yes, we really mean it, Joshua. We are committed this day to serve God. And Joshua says, okay, I hear you, and if you really mean this, God will bless you. But know that if you blow it, God will discipline you. And we know from here, the history of the nation of Israel is a history of mission drift. They are a people who as committed as they were in that moment, who having 
gotten pushback from their leader whom they respected who said, I don't think you can do this. They said, no, we are resolute. We are going to do this. Their story is a story of walking away from the God on this day that they said they're going to serve. Because the people of God throughout all of history have struggled to maintain mission. And we are no different. Which is why this is so important to stop and refocus and say, what are we about? This is where we go to the life of Jesus. This is where we, as a church, stop and reflect and say, what is it that we are about? And the church, as you know, is birthed because of Jesus' work. The church is birthed because Jesus came. The church didn't exist as we know it now during this time in the nation of Israel, but the church is here because of Jesus. And if that's true, then very simple, what Jesus came to do, we should also do. That seems wise, right? If Jesus kind of set this thing up in motion, it would be wise to stay as close to that heartbeat as we can. Let's just look at a couple passages in the New Testament. I'm going to put them up here. You're welcome to turn if you want to, but I'm going to put them up here for ease this morning. Of Jesus' mission and the church's mission, and then I want to draw some implications for us and refocus. All right. First is the story of um, Zacchaeus. You guys know that story, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. That was good. That was good. Okay, we're going to stop. Okay, we're going to stop. But that was good. That was good. You got, we're on it, all right? We know the story of Zacchaeus. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, all right? It's not in the Bible. That's all I remember about the story because I know the song, okay? Uh, and Zacchaeus, you know what he was. What was his occupation? Tax collector, absolutely. So a little less emotional for us, but you know if you know your Bible at all, and if you don't, here's the story. Tax collectors are the bottom of the barrel kind of people, all right? Sinners and tax collectors are together, and if I have a choice, I'd rather hang out with a sinner than a tax collector. That's the modern day, that's the way Judaism was. So here's the context in which Jesus makes this statement. After meeting with Zacchaeus, he goes into Zacchaeus' house, and he says, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. That is a category blower. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Why did Jesus come? In his own words, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Of who he begins by saying, I'm not just going to give you the principle so you can have it and remember it. I'm going to show it to you in the man of Zacchaeus, who is worse than a sinner. I'm going to his house, and this day, just so all of you know, all that the blessings and promises reserved for all the moral, religious Jews, I now bestow on the one that you think the least of. He's a son of Abraham. Why? Because my mission is to seek and to save the lost. Paul reflects on this. In his own writing, he says this about Jesus' work. He says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless like Zacchaeus, Christ died for the ungodly like Zacchaeus. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6, and 8. 
Paul is writing that. that is, this is so powerful for you to get. Listen, if you come from a family tradition in which your family has a strong reputation somewhere, anywhere, in whatever way that is, these verses are so pivotal for you to get about the mission of the church, about the mission of Jesus. We did not earn our place in the kingdom, ever. You were not chosen because your family is good or because you are moral. We do not have any right over anyone else to sit in these pews or to create our own culture, to do whatever we want, because while we were still powerless, unable to secure salvation, that moment is when Christ died for us. While we were still in our sin, not when we were moving out of it, not when we were getting better, but while we were still in the category of sinner, Christ died for us. This is, why, this is why Paul, when he writes later in 1 Corinthians, he says, I am becoming all things to all people. In fact, this is what he says. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. He says in the verses prior to, to that in 1 Corinthians, he says, I, I became a Jew to save the Jews. Like I became... I put myself back under the law to say people who were under the law. And I became like someone without the law to save someone without the law. That's a category blower too. I became like the weak to save the weak. In other words, I'm so moved by the mission of God in Christ that I'm going to reflect my entire life around this mission. Because this is what God did in Christ for us. To seek and to save the lost. And Paul's like, I want my life to be like that. By all possible means, I might save some. Later in Jesus' ministry, at the very end, after he dies, comes back and is resurrected, he has this moment with the disciples before he um, ascends to heaven. And he gives this statement that kind of becomes the foundation upon which the church functions and moves. And you, some of you will know it in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and here's just part of it. He makes a simple statement, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Therefore, in light of my life, in light of my death, and now my burial and resurrection, the resurrected Christ is standing there talking to his disciples and saying, now, do it. Go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them. Teaching them. And I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Go and do likewise. Go and do it. And this is why at Grace Point Church, we have this statement that we talk about our mission is this. Developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And I want to press into that for a moment. This statement can be rephrased, reworked this way. Developing followers into fully devoted followers. <laughs> Developing followers who are becoming fully devoted to Jesus Christ. In other words, the lead point of this, and this is important for us to understand, the lead point of this statement is that this church does not exist to make Christians better Christians. This church exists to seek and to save the lost and to develop them fully. If we don't have followers, we can't develop anything. So the leading point of the mission is not that the church exists for itself. 
the leading point of the mission is that we can help people move from not following first to following. And then when they follow, let's develop and grow and mature and build into. And then let's help them become fully devoted. In other words, they're ready to repeat the cycle and move that way. And this is why we'll do things like move blast from here to the old Paradise Elementary School. Why? Not because we just want to throw things up in the air for fun. Because the leading point is this church exists to help people who are not following to find Jesus. It's our mission to seek and to save the lost. That by all possible means that we can help save some. Now, there's one church I know that says, makes this in their value statement, we will do anything short of sin to bring people to faith in Christ. Very interesting way to put it. Their point, I've become all things to all people that by all possible means we might save some. So here's the church, the church's mission, Grace Point's mission, built on the work of God in Christ. Now, here's the question then for us, and I told you I'm going to turn it personal, okay? People make up the church. You sitting here, if you're listening later online, you make up the church. So it's not just, hey, that sounds great for the church, but the question comes down to what about me, and where am I at? And so I want to identify in just a few moments some dangers, some dangerous drifts that can happen for us as people. Some moves that can happen that are subtle, because we know that all drifts are subtle. They can happen to individual Christians who at one point in life wanted to be committed, at one point, kind of like the people who saw Harvard going downhill and said, we want to create a new institution that will hold to light and truth. We're going to create Yale. And now we know where Yale is. I want to identify for you, and here's what I hope in this list. This list is not from God, necessarily, all right? This isn't found in the Bible, necessarily. There are elements that are, but... uh, it's a practical list of things that I hope that you can think through, that I hope you personally can reflect on and ask the question, am I drifting into any of these areas? Is there any drift going on for me? Okay, We'll walk it through and see what happens. All right? Dangerous drift areas. Number one, there's a dangerous drift for the Christian um, into practicality. And I'm finding, and I'll share a little bit here with you, I'm finding that the older I get, the stronger a pull this is. In other words, the more responsibilities that come to me, the easier it is just to drift to the practical, meaning the schedule, the calendar, what's next? Where are we driving to next? What meeting do I need to attend next? What follow-up needs to happen next? What thing needs to be created next? You know, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's on the schedule? What needs to be paid? What needs to be saved? You know, who needs to be fed? And all the practical daily stuff of life that needs to be taken care of. But there can become a drift into this is kind of all that there is, is taking care of the practical right in front of me. There can be a drift to the practical. There can also be a drift to morality. This is a dangerous one. They they all are. But the drift to morality is essentially saying this, that really all that I want to get out of church is that my children will be raised to be nice and kind. And that's what I hope the church does for us, is that I can bring them to a church thing and my kids will be 
by the time they graduate from high school, I hope that they have not drunk, at least not too much, that they've listened to the right music, and hopefully our new youth guy can help them listen to all the right music, okay? I hope that they um, have kept themselves pure, all right? I mean, that's an important thing. And, and really, if we have done that, like, I'm grateful for the church. In other words, a drift to morality as the, the kingpin of all that we hope that the church or Christianity will do for us. And I understand, I get it, that morality is a part of the Christian life and the Christian ethic, but it is not the mission of the church. It's not the mission of the Christian. There can be a drift to morality. There can also be a drift to criticism. And again, the older I get, the more adept I become at this skill. I don't know if you can relate. In other words, the older I get, the more I see what can possibly go wrong right, and what needs fine-tuned and why someone didn't do things the way that I thought they should have, why that decision was made. And, and here's what can happen. Here's what I want to highlight on this one. There can be a drift to saying this. If only those people would have made different decisions, I would have responded differently. Well, it's not my fault that the church isn't whatever. I'm not leading it. And we can criticize and put off blame on a leader or someone else and say, oh, if only they would make different decisions, then I would be more passionate in my pursuit of Christ. Deflecting responsibility to someone else. It can be a drift to that kind of criticism. Fourthly here, there can be a drift to self-salvation. Here's the real funny irony of the gospel. When we come to the point of saying, I need Christ, it is a low point in your humanity. It is a high point in God's work. But it is a low point in your humanity. In other words, you realize, I can't do it on my own. I am weak. I need saved. I can't be strong enough, wise enough to figure out. It is a low point in humanity, in your understanding of who you are, but it is a high point in the work of God. We don't like to stay low, right? Like We don't like to show weakness. We don't like to show the frailty that is really us. And so, we will come down, so to speak, and show dependence on God through Christ and salvation, but then we want to, in a hurry, look good again. We, we want to look strong enough. We want to look smart enough. We want to look savvy enough, intelligent enough. We want to look good enough. And part of that is the self-salvation project, because we don't like to stay dependent for long. And part of a drift can be, I'm not really sure I need God that regularly. Like, I'm not sure that I need to pray that regularly. I'm not sure that I need God's insight that regularly because I'm kind of, I kind of got it. I mean, I, I'm there and I'm in the middle of a self-salvation project. It can be a drift in that area, right? It can be a drift to something shiny. All right? In other words, any hobby, any interest, any stuff that just grabs your heart and grabs your attention. There's something shiny, right? I figured that would communicate. I wasn't quite sure how to put all that together, but I think you know what I'm trying to say, all right? It can be a drift to putting our resources and putting our energy into the next best thing, into something else that's newer, into whatever it might be, and pursuing things that we all, we all know will never really satisfy. And there can be a drift to that, okay? There can also be a drift to unchallenging relationships, Surrounding yourself with people who allow you to continue to drift does not help you stay on mission. Surrounding yourself with people who don't ask you tough questions will mean that you will drift. It is inevitable. 
It's subtle, but it is inevitable. If the second law of thermodynamics is true, and I think it's true relationally, if you hang out with people who are not challenging you spiritually, why do you think you would grow spiritually if you don't have relationships like that? Like you will degenerate and go down to the least common denominator. It's just what's going to happen. There could be a drift to unchallenging relationships, not surrounding yourself with people who are going to sharpen you and challenge you. And here's the thing, don't wait for someone to come to you to help you. You are that person for somebody else. Okay? There can be a drift to unchallenging relationships. And finally this, to reductionism. In other words, oh, come on. I mean, that's, uh, the mission of God isn't that important. I mean, that's important. I get it. It's important. I wouldn't say it in church. I wouldn't say it's not important. But come on. Like, it's not all that there is. Like, my kid's safety is important, right? Like, that's more important than the life of the church. I mean, my health, that's important too, isn't it? That's more important than kind of anything else. Right? I mean, not being dependent on the government for aid and my, getting my bank account set, I mean, that's really important too, isn't it? There can be a, a drift to reducing the call of God in our lives. Jesus says, hey, if anyone wants to come after me, let him pursue his bank account, get healthy, and raise a good family, and let me know what's going on at the end of life. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There can be a drift to reducing the mission of the church because it's easier that way. I find myself in this list, and I give it to you to ask you, Will you look at it? Will you look at this list this week? Will you look and ask the question? To God, to yourself, with your friends, am I here? Am I drifting anywhere? Am I drifting? Because no matter how well built the aircraft carrier is or how powerful the destroyer is, if it is placed in open water, the current will move it wherever it will. No matter how well put together your life is, without intentionality or without an anchor, it's inevitable. We're going to drift. The question becomes, if this is the mission of the church, what does it look like to get there? If we are about seeking and saving the lost, and first of all, finding, loving, caring for people who need to follow Christ and need to know of his love and grace. What does it look like? What should the church look like when it's moving in that direction? If you want to know the answer to that question, come next week. We're going to hit it then. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to refocus this morning to rethink why it is that we exist as a church and why it is that we exist as a people. Father, I pray that you would give us courage to start or to stop or to increase or decrease the things that we are doing, the choices that we are making, the relationships that we have. Give us courage to reflect honestly on who we are in light of what you call the church to be.
And as we push against that, as we struggle with that, and all the implications of that for things that are important to us, give us grace and focus for when we fail. We thank you that you have drawn us, you call us, and you lead us, that at the end of the day, the mission of the church comes because your love for the sinner is so great that you've sent your son Jesus Christ to come save us while we are still in our sin. That kind of love compels, draws, and motivates. And that kind of love is love that never fails and never gives up. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.